out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. That does sound rather serious, Jim, but we will cope. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastall, and this is the C86 Show, always playing the finest in indie pop and beyond. As you know, we love a special guest. We so do. And this week, all the way from the United States of America, I spoke to Anna Domino. Indeed. By the way, this is the fourth time I've tried to do this introduction. I don't know why I kept messing it up. Anyway, I'd managed to track her down. She was amazing and friendly and um, patient with me. Um, So we managed to get this interview together. And this is it. And after about five minutes of chat and banter and me babbling on about a lot of rubbish, this is the interview. And this is where I, after sort of realising that we couldn't just babble on forever, ask a little bit about those early years of being, you know, in music. What happened? How did she get to where she was? Because, frankly, if you get a chance, the track that she did called Lake, which I still think is musical perfection, is worth listening to. If you haven't heard it, find it. If you know it, then just play it again every day to the end of the year. Anyway, this is it. Anna, thank you. Take it away. Oh, but I think it began sort of pre-verbally. Pre-verbally. Uh, because I would, when, when I was very, very small, I would make up songs in my head that had no real words to them. They had visuals and they had a melody and they often, I would conjure these up to, to make myself sad. I don't know why. And then I would try them out on my little brother, poor thing. And I would sing him these things until he started to cry. And then I would knew, know that they worked. <laughs> God, that's Isn't very... That yes, awful? it is. It, what is an interesting. But then I suppose a lot of sort of nursery rhymes and, and the sort of songs that I grew up listening to, and I suppose it wasn't me, it was my mum was listening to, were those ones from the 60s, like Burt Bacharach and Hell David and then The Carpenters. Yeah. And, they, and they were sort of full of romantic melancholia and, and sadness and, and loneliness. Yeah. So it was kind of... I can see why by the 80s I was into people like Joy Division and the Smiths because, um, yes, I'd grown up listening to Karen Carpenter singing I Say Goodbye to Love and thinking, (laughs) you know, as a a five-year-old, it wasn't good, was it? So did you start... No, no, but yes, it's it's always been that way. Isn't that the kind of thing that humans do? But my mother played uh, records of the little stories, the little fir tree, the little match girl... You can't get sadder than that, you know? You know those stories? Yes. Sort of fairy tales, but fairy tales of of doom. Um, And that, I think, was another... And I think it's also when you're a kid, it's... You get... It's fascinating to see if you can manipulate the emotions of others, you know? So you try humor and sorrow. I was also very funny, but I... um, Yes, but I started in music in my head uh, to conjure up sa- sadness. Yes, and did you, in in your youth, did you move around a lot with your parents? Because they were, yes, because you were born in Japan, weren't you? True. I was born in Yokohama, and because my father had surprised everyone by joining the army, 
and we were stationed over there at the end of the Korean War, and he was translating uh, English or American into Chinese for Voice of America propaganda radio. And um, so we were just there for a couple of years. But then, they, yeah, they moved around a lot. We ne were never anywhere for more than three years. Yes. Somehow. And how did that affect you? Because obviously, you know, I mean, I just had the same primary school and then the same secondary school, but to move from, mm -hmm. from schools and countries as well, which were so diverse, because then it was America and then Italy as well. So, you mm -hmm. know, you, you got a lot, you packed a lot in, in you know, up to your late First, teens. Yeah, yeah. And then Canada. And um, I think all, the only concrete Thing that I got out of it is there's no real home to go home to so I just keep moving <laughs> <laughs> this is true and then you, you you know did you do the the college university trek as well well sadly I was uh expelled from high school before I got my high school diploma and this was just sheer mean spiritedness, but they, they kicked me out on the last day of school of my, uh, and I would have had to repeat my final year of high school and I just didn't. They eventually gave me a diploma so that I could go to college and university. And I went to art school for a couple of years, but I'd lost a couple of the connecting years, you know, between high school and college or university. Uh, because instead, you know, without the high school graduation diploma, I uh, I hitchhiked across America and down into Mexico. And after that, I didn't. I went to art school in Toronto. I loved it there, but all I heard about was New York. And so I went to New York and thought, all right, well. Let's, let's see what all the talk is about. Yes. And then, and in New York, I, I stayed for 20 years because there was so much there to explore. Yes. Having sort of um, been obsessed with, I suppose, watching rock documentaries and music documentaries over, over my life, I should, oh. I, should, I should sort of find more interesting, not more interesting things, but yes, <laughs> I sort of stuck on this. You know, having seen documentaries on New York in the 70s, I mean, it was quite a barren wasteland, wasn't it, which seemed to sort of allow a lot of people to gravitate to probably creative as well as probably sort of quite seedy as well because it was like a lot of cheap accommodation. But also, you know, New York during the 70s, you know, was the birth of rap, punk and disco. Who could not forget disco? So you must have been right there from 77 onwards watching this all happening with, you know, from yeah. with all those kind of CBGBs and, you know, all that gang. So did you suddenly feel incredibly excited to be, though you didn't realise at the time, you know, in that moment where it all started to really happen? It's, you know how everything looks so different in when you're in the middle of something than it does in hindsight, but... Because at the time, we all felt that we were watching the death of a great city because it was just falling apart. There were, uh, you know, the, a couple of subway tunnels collapsed. There was the Son of Sam murder spree. There were the blackouts when I first got there. Um, and the ransacking of Times Square. 
there were several people were attacked by rats <laughs> downtown uh, in these construction zones that would just, when they would dig out the foundation of a building, they would just find hundreds of thousands of rats and the rats would swarm if they were disturbed. And I saw one of these swarms once and it just, it was hundreds of thousands of rats coming, pouring out of a subway grate and across four lanes of traffic. It's about two in the morning, so there's no, no traffic really. But right towards me and I was just frozen on the street. I mean, they were just fanning out, but it's solid rat. And then a bus came by and after the bus had passed, they had vanished and I don't know where they went. They probably just went back into their subway hole. But so there were all these sort of phenomena, you know, end of world type, you know, <laughs> uh, the signs of the final days. I mean, there are no four horsemen, but there were, you know, rats and well, there weren't any frogs either. But, you know, it was epic. It was biblically bad. Yes, it sounded like the apocalypse. It was going to all end because I suppose in the UK, I mean, during that time, which I can vaguely remember, I should, I, I, you know, there was there was a lot of strikes. There was, you know, a lot of kind of poverty, a lot of kind of, yeah, yeah things were bubbling under quite badly. And I suppose, you know, that yes, there was there was a lot of stories that, yeah, the, the governments weren't really holding it together, and people begin to feel quite insecure because they didn't really know if it was going to really tip completely over the yeah. edge. And like you said, you know, now we look back and go, oh, that was all marvellous. We all hung out with Debbie Harry well, and Andy Warhol and it was all great. And right. <laughs> at the time, it was like probably quite hell. Yeah. Well, but at, at the same time, it was also absolutely, it was wonderful because it was wide open. You could really sort of try anything. You could get any amount of room that you wanted for very little money. Um, everybody had to kind of, take care of each other because it was dangerous um, and dark and empty uh, compared to now. Um, and yes, you know, infrastructure was failing. You, uh, buildings were falling down. Um, on the Lower East Side, I was passing a building when it just collapsed. It didn't have anybody in it, but it was uh, these tenements on the Lower East Side that had been built in the late 1800s and meant to last about 30 years. And 100 years later, 150 years later, they're still there. And they had just begun to to fall down. Yes. And, <laughs> Not good. And there were great, there were blanks in the city where the buildings had fallen down and the city had come along and kind of made a pile of the bricks. And then on top of the bricks, they would put a few crushed cars. It was, I don't know why, <laughs> but there, there were these, and you'd think, I mean, it looks exactly like the, set, the end of the world. They're just kind of trying to make some order to it. So it doesn't spread. So you'd have piles of rubble with, a, with some crushed metal on top. Lots of abandoned cars on the streets, not that much traffic, but, you know, a car would appear and over a course of three or five days, it would be totally picked apart and there'd just be a skeleton left. And the city would come along with a steamroller and kind of roll it flat and then put it on top of the rubble. And I don't know, maybe they did it for fun. Yes. Well, I guess, I mean, it sounded like some of the early Glastonbury festivals where they used to make sort of um, a Stonehenge out of vehicles, which was um, 
quite kind of at the time quite striking. The, it, was, <laughs> it was very sort of, and that, again, that was kind of very 80s as well. So as the as we turned into the next decade, and we had Reaganomics and also Thatcherism in, in the UK, yes. you also started yeah. to um, release records. So when did it suddenly appear that you thought, actually, I can make a record here, which isn't something that most people do, but you have and, and did. So, And then to, to top it off, you know, it was with the Belgium record label as well. So how did that all sort of start to um, happen? Yeah. Hmm. I... In Toronto, when I was in art school, and then afterwards, when I moved to New York, I kept trying to join bands. And of course, they were usually groups of young men. And they would say, we don't need a backing singer or a tambourine player. So why don't you start a girl group? And I got very angry about this. And um, so I finally, it, it became apparent after 12th band that I had to just make my own music because I would come in with ideas that was the other annoying thing and say why don't we play this I just wrote something hurrah and there'd be this silence and, and the lead singer guy would say no that's not why you're here you know it was just the way things were and I was just being confusing and um so I started writing my own music for me, but that was just my own music for me. I didn't have any plan. But then my friend Stanton Miranda, who uh, was going under the name Thick Pigeon for a while, um, and she was signed. She got signed. Or she through her. She and her boyfriend knew Michelle Duval of Crepuscule because her boyfriend worked in some capacity with factory records. So it, the next time Michelle Duval was in New York, she introduced me to him and I sent him a cassette of small, very small songs. And eventually he sent me a plane ticket, maybe two or three years later. It took a long time. And then I went and recorded. They gave me, uh, six days in a recording studio in the middle of the night because it was being built so I had to wait for the con contractors to leave and uh, when the six days were done that was it and and in tears I left promising to write a dance song or something more accessible and come back uh, but then a year and a half after that I got a test pressing in the mail and that was the first record I mean, it was really just sort of all very accidental, and um, I don't think Crepuscule obviously was not particularly invested in me, but none of us really knew what we were doing, so all was fair. Yes, and also, I mean, at, at that stage, it, you know, at that time, in the UK, you know, like, we had had the post-punk scene and obviously there was the sort of mainstream charts and that re new romantic scene that was happening a lot in this country, especially. And the, there was that production sound that was very Trevor Horn, which was kind of very, I don't know, overproduced, I suppose. And now you listen and it sounds quite dated. But then there was the other scene, which was what, um, you know, like the John Peel world and the, the new musical Express, the, the weekly mm -hmm. newspaper um, 
music paper that we all sort of religiously bought on a Wednesday. Really? So, so, so that was all sort of exciting. But sort of then the sort of bands like the Smiths came along and they, they did that first kind of record in 83. And then the next five years, you know, it was very dominated. You know, the alternative scene was dominated with bands a bit like that. There was a sort of golden period. And in that period, you're, you're sort of that... You you brought out those three albums almost in the lifespan of the Smiths. You know, you did East and West, then the self-titled, and then this time. So you you were obviously on quite a roll. So did you record all those albums in Belgium? Yes. Yes, at different studios, sort of patchwork sometimes. Except for this time. This time I think we did in one studio... Um, with an actual budget, yeah. Yes, because the the, the the song, and probably everyone says this to you, the song that um, I, I sort of, I, I wouldn't say I discovered you, because <laughs> I'm sure other people have, but the one that, that really was my breakthrough one was Lake that you did. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Which was one of those kind of classics that we all listened to religiously for probably about two years because it was so beautiful. So can you remember recording and, and writing Lake? I remember writing it uh, because the melody actually was Michelle Delores, um, the guitarist that I was working with and my husband now. Ha ha. Um, and he wrote that beautiful guitar melody, which I then, um, he just kept playing it when we were working on other things. And so the rest of the song just sort of came to me as if in a dream, as things do. And um, we first recorded it, I think, on a multi-track cassette system that we had, uh, and then took it in the studio, I think. Um, but mostly what I remember about those studio sessions has nothing to do with the music. It's all about the... Uh, the recording studio, which is a long and hilarious story that I won't go into. But um, because I think it went, that song went very quickly because we didn't really add anything much to it. You know? Yes. Whereas some of the other songs got a little, you know, people wanted to bring in the bombast. It was the sound of the time, you know, and we didn't know. No, but I mean, that was the song that, that seemed to capture, um, well, me and, and sort of various people that I was um, hanging out with at the time. And, and yes, that became a bit of a soundtrack. So, yes, that was the one that you went, oh, this is a bit of a classic, isn't it? So, um, yes, I just wondered how that compared and how you felt about that song during that period and, and what your memories of it were. Yeah, it's... It was one of those songs that just wrote itself and then in the studio went very smoothly because we knew exactly what we wanted to do with it, which was almost, you know, it, which was minimal. Um, so we didn't let the producer touch it or anything. We just did it very simply. And then other things, other songs, uh, we weren't quite so clear about uh, and some songs we wrote while we were in the studio uh, so it's all you know very uneven but lake stood out because it was it was already so sure of itself 
Yes. It's hard to explain. Yeah. But you can hear that, you know. Yeah, it stands up. It does definitely stand up. So as the decade progressed, and obviously doing three albums in a really short time, I mean, did it, was there a moment, because after that, did your sort of recording and output sort of drop? Well, I was having disputes with the record label, and I have to say that Crepuscule then is not the same label as Crepuscule now, because I'm still on Crepuscule in a way. Um, but it's it's a completely different thing, and it it was just the way things were done in the time at the time. I began to realize that I would never receive any of my publishing royalties ever, you know, or really anything. And being an uppity sort of a chick, it made me angry, and I started to raise heck. And they didn't take that very well. So I, um, I thought I would look for another label, haha. -ha. Um, at the same time, I was bound to Crepuscule for a number of albums. And I, I didn't, I couldn't bring myself to record with them again when I realized that I would never receive any of the remuneration that I was due. So I started the Snake Farm Project, which is a totally different thing. Yes, and and I remember, yes, that came into our orbit as well because um, I don't know why, or, but some, but you did an amazing version of um, House of the Rising Sun, didn't you? It was fun. I mean, was, these are all songs that I grew up with, and I uh, never really thought about covering them. But once again, it was just one of those things that sprang in my head and I spent a night working on oh, St. James Infirmary and, and House of the Rising Sun and one other. Um, and in the morning I had uh, arrangements that I thought were hilariously funny, sort of. Uh, they amused me. So we started recording them, but we didn't really know what we would do. Um, and then we got an offer from a label out in Los Angeles. This, we were still in New York at the time. And that led to the first record, mm. which was fun. And it was all recorded at home um, and then mastered by a, you know, a, a good mastering company. Yes. Which is what... And this and this album, this was titled "Songs for My Funeral," which uh, yeah. <laughs> a nice and cheerful one. And because because during that time, I remember sort of there was a lot of interest in alt country artists coming through as well, like um, Gillian Welsh and mm -hmm. Stacey Earle and Kim Ritchie and Sean Colvin. So I think that probably I don't think I at that time to you know and this was decades now, isn't it? Because it was nineteen ninety nine. Um, yeah. I think I think in a way I didn't realise it was you that was was part of this band. Actually, I think I went oh interesting cover and then heard the the right you know rising sun and then thinking actually this is very good and then suddenly having one of those. We probably used to have, you know, in those days, we were still doing dial-up on computer and no one had a proper website. So, yeah. yes, and all that kind of stuff. So sort of tracking things down. And then it slightly dawned on me later. So with that, I mean, obviously, with that a particular outfit, you did two albums, which, um, so, yes, which must have been quite fun. But they were very long. There was quite a gap between them. Yes, it's there's no one hammering on my door 
demanding new material. So each time I had to go out and look for a label, which, um, well, the first time it came through in, uh, tangentially through Matt Johnson, because Matt knew a guy running a, uh, a booking agency out here in Los Angeles who was starting a label. And it, so I had given uh, some songs to Matt and he'd pass them on. Um, and that got us the first uh, recording deal. But, uh, but for the second record, um, I went through Ian Anderson, who runs Folk Roots magazine. Oh, yes. Who's been really a great friend and supporter. And he, um, he put me in touch with a friend of his, David Suff, that runs um, Fledgling um, you know, this small, small label, but it was great because it just gave us, uh, a home sort of to, to put the record out on. Yes. Well, I suppose it's, sort of the, I suppose it's the mechanics, isn't it? Things that you would just not be able to do as a sort of a solo person dealing with all the admin and, and what needs to go where and you know, what pieces of paper need to be sorted. So I guess, being part of a home and I've spoken to quite a lot of people who've been making music and and you know the idea of crowdfunding and then do it all yourself after a while it just becomes quite overwhelming you just kind of want somebody else to take the baton and say look I'll sort all this bit out you just you just sort out the music and and <laughs> create some masterpieces rather than having to sit there sort of dealing with sort of you know kind of quite complicated legality and, and all boring spreadsheets exactly that is the ideal even if it's not ideal, it's just, um, yes, it's incredibly time consuming. I was talking to a friend the other day who's, yes, done his Kickstarter campaign. They finished the album and he was on his way to the post office to mail out 500 packages, you know, of, of stuff that he has promised that for people that contribute to fund the record. And it's, it's great, but it's, it is an, incredibly time consuming and yeah. then booking tours and all of that kind of thing so we've kind of fallen off the map because we're all we do is write and we just keep writing yes <laughs> well this is good i mean you know prince, yeah. prince had the same sort of um ethic didn't he so but in then in 2010 you you released two two new songs on a compilation so did did things change with the record label again well, that um, that was spearheaded by Isabel Antenna, and she uh, it was her idea to, to to get a few of us together from the old Crepuscule days, and do a cover of one of our old songs, do a new song, and something else. Um, and so, uh, so we did that, and it, it was a lot of fun, and. That was for the sort of the new crepuscule, the, the crepuscule. I don't know when uh, he took over the crepuscule name, but it was, you know, a good decade ago. So. Yes. So then obviously we were sort of oh, actually almost in the right same decade as, as, the, as the years are whizzing by. So then you sort of collaborated <laughs> with, with a new producer or mixer dub mentor on a single called Johnny. So 
Um, yes. Was this? Did you feel like there was a new sort of lease of life? Oh, I always do. <laughs> every morning, um, <clears throat> and every every year there are a couple of things that come up, and most of them fall through. But there's always there's always something to look forward to. There's always something promising. There's always something, you know, that's um, that's worth trying. And we keep writing, so there's always that too. Yes, because I remember sort of there was you know you know as I was sort of speaking to you, sort of realizing there's lots of artists that <clears throat> did some amazing albums, and then you think, oh my god, I have no idea what happened to them. But that was yes. uh, only thirty years ago. There was another one called Mary Margaret O'Hara who did mm -hmm. an album called Miss America, which was like, wow, that's a classic, almost right there, you know, instant brilliant. And then I think that was it, and that was in the eighties. So obviously. There is a world of people out there making music, but is it just difficult to get it out there into the public domain? It is, yes. It, it just, either you do, as you said, all the administrative work yourself, which is a full-time occupation, or you <laughs> try and interest other people in doing it with you or for you. Um, and that, you know, it's not so easy to find. Although I have to say that we may be doing another Anna Domino record with Crepuscule, which will be fun, of new material. Yes. That, that just came up. That's we, that's on the horizon. Because all the material now has been repackaged and re-released and it's available yeah. in, in different places. So that must feel quite nice to have all that sort of archived, so to speak, and, and at least sort of dusted yeah. down and various demos and best ofs and you know going through the archive so so did that feel like a nice process to have that done yes for the most part there are some you know live songs and demo type things that i would have done differently because i'm a picky you know it's my music i always want to control everything but i'm glad that James Nice and the people at LTM and the new Crepus School, you know, took it upon themselves to preserve these things because I wouldn't have. I've lost, you know, lots of material because I just didn't bother to keep track of it. Yes. And obviously you, you've had material remixed by the legendary Arthur Baker. So was that, <laughs> was that quite a bizarre experience? Yes. Yes, that is the word. Yes. It was uh, very funny. Um, because I was on tour uh, in the summer of 86. So many, so much happened. What a tour that was. That was, you know, Chernobyl blew up. We were in Switzerland for the first rain after Chernobyl. And we were the only people out on the street. Because you know, everybody knew that there was a cloud over Switzerland, the radiation. But we were blissfully unaware um, but when uh, Michel Duval of the record label, he came to meet up with us, I think in Liechtenstein, and he said, oh, we've remixed Summer with Arthur Baker, who I knew vaguely from New York. So he played it for me. And it, it was so different from the song that I had. I mean, the, the, the original 
version of summer I had written was a dirge in three, four time, like everything. And I do. And then uh, it had kind of picked up in the recording under the influence of the, of that producer. And then when Arthur Baker took it, he, he gave it, you know, full on bombast with yes. all the, you know, horns and backing vocalists and oompa bands. <laughs> and it just, it was different. It was just a, a, a different whole sort of thing. Um, and I really, I, it, I didn't really know what to think of it. I, I got a kick out of it, it but um, it didn't, it wasn't really mine anymore, which <laughs> is fair, fair. Yes, because actually it's been quite nice because going back to that tour, quite a lot of those, you've got quite a lot of those live dates came out on a, um, the East and West album and live in, in Japan. So did you sort of start finding you had sort of an audience obviously in the UK and Europe and sort of also the Far East. You mean when, when those things came out or back in early Crepuscule days? Uh, yeah, the early days. As, as um, yeah. So, you know, I just wonder because there's nothing more exciting as a, as a fan finding obscure artists to sort of worship. So I just wondered if you'd also started <laughs> to find that, you know, you were getting quite a sort of solid fan base both in the UK, Europe, but also in the Far East. It, the, the Japan connection was extraordinary. Crepuscule had... Crepuscule au Japon. They, they created a label over there with really good backing and... Um, great people working with them, and it was... It was wonderful to be able to go over there every couple of years. It, um, but we never quite knew what was going to happen because it's crepuscule. And so once, for instance, we were sent over to Japan with a, what was it? It was some kind of giant piece of restaurant equipment that because Crepuscule was going to be opening a bar, cafe sort of thing in Tokyo. <clears throat> and they had to bring this, I don't even remember what it was, you know, a waffle maker or something from Belgium. And we traveled with it as if it was a piece of, they, we had to pretend it was a piece of musical equipment. <laughs> and it was huge. It was, uh, you know, the size of a, what three human beings a large chest of drawers it was this giant piece of mechanical equipment that we had to insist with at customs depot was you know um part of our stage act <laughs> i was but, just i was just going to say customs must have been very confused normally you know, looking at various instruments keyboards guitars and mixing boards but um and not not whole sort of uh, kitchenware which was um, quite extraordinary yes so, but yeah, that was also the time when, of course, when you went to Japan and you went to the music stores, they had, they were on the cutting edge of, you know, all the uh, new electronics, the new technology and uh, musical technology. And so we would come home with new keyboards and instruments and uh, 
mixing boards and effects equipment. And when we would get to customs in Belgium, we would say, you know, about the new keyboard, oh, this is just a guitar pedal, even though it's three feet long and weighs a ton and has keyboard, a keyboard on it, you know, it, we would have, we were smuggling things sort of back and forth. Yes. Um, yes. And, and during that time, did you, was there any other bands or artists that you felt a slight kindred spirit to, or what did you feel like you were quite there on your own, play on your own furrow? Good question. I mean, there was a, I, I listened to a lot of music all the time, but I didn't feel like what I did was part of any, I remember, you know, I would, people would say, oh, but you're like Sade because you do sort of jazz inflected be songs because of rhythm. And I'd say, no, I'm not at all like Sade because I can't, first of all, sing like her. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just, a, it's a very different thing. My songs, I'm not much of a singer. My songs are all about the words. Uh, but I, I, I remember insisting with one interviewer that I was more like Tom Waits which just confused him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I couldn't, I didn't know where I fit in or if I did, but it, there wasn't any real, there wasn't anything to be gained in trying to figure that out because I had tried to alter my sound to make it more appealing, let's say, but it, it was always a bad idea, I think. Yeah. Because, I mean, what's quite boggling is, um, and it probably doesn't give you much financial happiness, but um, on Spotify, you do get a huge amount of monthly listens, don't you? Which is... I have no idea. But it says monthly listeners, 32,000, which is, is quite phenomenal. I mean, it's like, blimey, that's, that's you know, because a lot of, I have to confess, a lot of the indie bands I, uh, you know, interview from, from back in the 80s, you know, I have a look mm -hmm. at that, that little register and it's probably in the hundreds, if not possibly a thousand, but not really that high, but actually, really? more, but quite small. You know, these are just indie bands that, you know, for a few years were on the NME, on the John Peel show, did tours, but, you know, not many people, you know, people are still listening, but, but, you, you know, you do have a phenomenal following, you know, of devoted fans. That's extremely encouraging. Thank you. I'm, I, I'm in the dark. And it's wonderful to hear something like that because I honestly am unaware. Yes. <laughs> well, it's just that because it shows, you know, like your most popular song is Every Day I Don't, and that's got... 500,000 mm -hmm. listeners and Land of My Dreams is up to 785,000 listens and Trust in Love has got 283,000, you know, that's how many times it's been played. So so mm -hmm. we're talking you know, really big figures. So that's why I was thinking, oh, well, you know, obviously people out there must be thinking, when's the next album coming out? I guess, but then, it, it, I mean, it is so funny because so... Every day I don't. That's this song where nothing much really happens. It's the way that I sort of wrote. I still write that way, sort of layers of rep repetitive melody. Um, 
in the instrumentation and then the voice over top of that. But it, um, you know, it goes on for almost seven minutes. <laughs> and I didn't know that that, you know, that there was a three minute limit. Um, <laughs> no idea. I, but the newer, I, you know, I was, the last album that we did with Crepuscule was Mysteries of America. And uh, I was, I was quite proud of parts of it. Um, the song Dust sounded as I meant it to sound. And I thought, oh, finally, I'm getting <laughs> to a point where I can see a song all the way through, you know, where from the initial concept and how it sounds in my head to getting it down in the studio, which is really a long way to try and hold an idea together. Um, but nobody listens to that record as much as they do to the really old stuff, which is <laughs> this, you know, yeah. It is interesting, isn't it? And just last, I mean, what would you kind of say to your, I mean, an 18 year old self or just the key thing that you think, God, oh, that that's that's something that I've picked up through. You know, that's a bit of wisdom and knowledge. That's kind of I didn't have back then. But my God, I've learned it now. And that would have been such a good thing to have known when I was beginning. Oh, just to not be afraid do, do not hesitate <laughs> um, because I was so intimidated by everything and I allowed it to sort of crush me repeatedly, not completely. I always came back, but it, and I, I took things too, so seriously, you know, I, I made such an issue out of losing my royalties, you know, of, of the petty theft that went on. When in fact, I have to admit, it just wasn't that important. I should have just kept making music and, and not, you know, tried to engage lawyer after lawyer to try and do what's right, because it felt like such a you know, it's the, it's why people are so, in the arts especially, sort of obsessive about how much they get paid because it's how, hmm, how you are how much you are appreciated, right? If people pay you, it means they care about your work. If they don't pay you, if they steal from you, it means that you are worthless to them. And it's it's oh. such a difficult position to be in already because you're putting your sort of heart and soul on the line with the work that you do and then you're working for people who steal from you it can tear you to pieces but you shouldn't you can get so caught up in this thing I know people have lost their minds over it and I did for a while myself but it, it uh, you just you can't be afraid you can't let this kind of crap you know um crush you and you have to just keep making this stuff that you must make whether you get paid or not 
Yes. Yeah. Well, it's a tricky one because, I mean, in a way, that's... Uh, we, we kind of value us, you know, I mean, we do value ourselves sometimes via the financial rewards, which is, yeah. like you said, it's tricky. And you can always let go of that. But then everywhere you go, whether you're getting your teeth fixed, your car fixed, you know, the carpet sorted, everyone else kind of has an exchange with money. And then you're thinking, but this is my life. And now I've got to just give it away. That's not, I quite, know. That's not quite no. right. <laughs> that's it's a tricky very, one. It is. It's very tricky. And I never quite figured it out. But I did realize that giving up music wasn't an option. I never should have. I kept trying to give it up, but it, it's, it was a mistake. But I had to relearn it over and over, you know, cause, because I would come up against that that insoluble problem of, you know, yes, everyone needs to be paid, but what about me? And, <laughs> um, and I would think, well, I obviously I can't work in this medium because I cannot bring these people to book. I cannot get them to live up to the contracts that we have. So I've got to move on to something else. I have to get a job in that cafe. Uh, or, you know, I, I do seamstress work um, and other things to make a living, but the music is the thing that's the essential work that I need to do. And without it, it's, not possible i don't know it's for sanity's sake i have to go back to it yes. and then of course it wants to drive me crazy because there's no money but it, I, yeah i don't know maybe there isn't a solution and that's what working in the arts is all about <laughs> god it's such a yes yeah, actually... yeah. it's it's just an, 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 an eternal quandary right it's it's insoluble so <laughs> i know it is difficult and yet it's your calling in life so you know <laughs> yeah it's that's, not like you have a choice yeah that's true